Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. So that's a wrap on Supreme Court arguments for the term as the justices heard their final argument in a case about tax forfeitures. And we're actually going to speak with Hogan Lavelle's Neil Katyal, who not only argued that case, but also achieved a major milestone, his 50th Supreme Court argument. Uh, But first, Greg, uh, some news as we were sitting down to record this podcast. A story dropped um, in the Wall Street Journal, an interview with Justice Alito, and um, sounds like everything's good over at One First Street. (laughs) Yeah, as we sit here on Friday afternoon, I think we're both still digesting and perhaps reeling uh, from this this interview that he gave. Uh, Justice Alito, among other things in this interview, says he has a pretty good idea of who leaked the Dobbs decision. And oh, by the way, it's not one of the five members of the conservative uh, block that voted to overrule Roe v. Wade, because why would they do that to themselves? It wouldn't be rational because what happened after that? He also uh, said that he blamed members of the bar for not coming to the court's defense in the wake of a lot of attacks on the court and uh, generally had uh, uh, not a lot of nice things to say about those who have been questioning the court's uh, ethics in recent uh, weeks and months. Right. It really sort of struck me as Justice Alito does not think that there's really anything wrong with the Supreme Court as an institution, but it's really the way that outside forces are interpreting what they're doing, are explaining what they're doing, and are, you know, sort of instigating this sort of crisis of legitimacy that we've been we've been talking about a lot. Yeah. And one of the remarkable things about this um, you know, second maybe only to, to Clarence Thomas, Justice Alito is incredibly powerful at the moment. He wrote the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. He is at the helm of the Supreme Court making the kinds of changes to the law that he has long said that the, that should happen. And you read this interview, you read his his uh, dissenting opinion in the, the Mifepristone case last week, and he sounds like somebody who is losing because he is aggrieved and he is talking about uh, how people are not treating him fairly. And it's it's really remarkable. And to the extent that Justice Alito thinks he is, uh, you know, uh, potentially changing the perception of the court with this interview, uh, I, I suspect it will only uh, entrench uh, those views. Right. I mean, this is a this is a familiar thing that we've heard not so explicitly from the justices themselves, but definitely from, you know, Republicans and Democrats is this idea that what the court is doing is totally on the up and up and that, you know, it's it's really just an attempt by Democrats to trash the institution now that they're no longer um, have as much sway there. And on the other side, they're saying, you know, Democrats are saying, no, 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 look at these major moves that conservatives are making. It's, you know, they really are doing something to the institution. And, and this just seems to sort of take us more down that rabbit hole. So, Kimberly, I'm sure between the time we talk now and, and the time this airs, there will be a lot of commentary on Justice Alito's comments. Um, let's move on to something that I uh, alluded to earlier, which is that abortion pill order that that the Supreme Court came out with very late on Friday, uh, in which they blocked a ruling that would have uh, certainly restricted the abortion pill, if not taken it off the market entirely. What was your reaction to that ruling, to that that order? Was that what you were expecting the court to do? So, yes and no. 
So I was expecting that the court would do what it had done in the not so distant past and really just keep the status quo why the lower courts sort of figure this out we don't want you know one trial court judge you know in texas or wherever it may be sort of changing the law for everyone in the nation and then this possibility that oh they were wrong right so we just kind of want to keep things the same the fact that i wasn't totally sure that they would do that um at some points i was thinking well that's kind of bonkers how far we've we've come how much things have changed and this is something we've talked about on this podcast before is that the the supreme court has not been totally consistent on the shadow docket and how they've used the shadow docket and that seems to be in a lot of flux and it I mean, we'll talk about Justice Alito, but seems to be sort of some angst among the justices about how they use that. And so, yes, I was expecting this to come out that way, but I sort of wasn't totally clear. And the fact that I wasn't totally clear made me think like something has really shifted here. Yeah, I, I agree with with the at least the large majority of what you had to say there. Uh, <laughs> That's great. And now you're going to tell me I agree with most of what you said. But no, no, here's no. where you're terribly wrong, Kimberly. No, no, I'm not going to say you're terribly wrong at anything. <laughs> no, I, it, it's I mean the shadow docket sort of by its very nature because in part because we don't see an explanation most of the time for what the court does, so we don't really know why they they granted this stay. Um, we can only speculate on that. We know why a couple dissenters, including Justice, or we know why Justice Alito dissented because. He, he told us. Um, and so it is a little bit hard to know exactly what standards they're applying and how it will work out. One other thought I had, this was this was what I expected to happen. Uh, and the reason I expected it to happen, and I think this is part of what, what is behind it, is that unlike with the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, we have known conservatives have wanted to do that for 50 years. That has been part of the, the the legal movement, and you know, in a sense, when they had that chance, why should we be surprised that they took it? This, on the other hand, was not a conservative priority um, in terms of in terms of the law, at least. The idea that oh, we need federal judges to have the the ability to second guess a decision made by the the FDA or a series of decisions made by the FDA. You know, a lot of that is is kind of hard to square with. Uh, principles behind uh, uh, the conservative legal movement. So, you know, I think they, to the extent people were thinking, oh, I think the Supreme Court might let this decision stay in force, uh, that was probably because of this sense that abortion trumps everything as opposed to legal rules trumping everything. And at least this case, it seemed like legal rules uh, uh, carried the day uh, for for at least some members of the conservative wing. Well, Greg, I agree with the majority of what you said, but here's where <laughs> you're terribly wrong. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I get all that. I just, for me, it was um, very much SB8 and the whole way that that was sort of um, addressed by the court and the, and the final outcome there that was kind of creeping in the background for me. I think you could say a lot about what happened in SB8. That wasn't the core of what the conservative legal movement has been trying to do. Um, is allow, you know, there were a lot of funky legal rules going on there too. And, and yet, you know, the case ended up coming out the way that it did. I mean, yes, it was one an eight one opinion where they allowed the case to go forward, but it on such narrow grounds, it was never going to win. And, th- and then it didn't. And so, you know, I guess for me, that's, what was playing in the background was just the way that the court, very similarly situated as it is today, had dealt with that. 
So one more thing that we should probably um, update our listeners on, because we've been talking about it a lot and there's been some movement here, is um, this flurry of letters that seems to be going on between Senate Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin and Chief Justice John Roberts about an upcoming ethics hearing that's going to be held next week uh, in Congress. So we had previously talked about it. the latest series of, of letters, um, the Chief Justice declined Durbin's invitation to attend the, the meeting, which I guess wasn't too surprising. We can talk about that, Greg. But then it attached this uh, statement of ethical principles and practices, which was signed by all nine justices, which details their approach to ethical issues. And I think, I think this hit uh, Senator Durbin the same way that it hit me because he followed up with a letter saying, um, what? Uh, actually, he said that, that the, the statement of principles raised more questions than it resolved. Um, I was on the same page with him. What do you make of this statement of principles? Well, what I make of it is mostly that John Roberts wanted to give him something. And, you know, I, I, I would a big unanswered question is, when did the court start writing this statement? Was it in response to, to the Durbin letter? Uh, was it something they've been working on for months? Uh, you know, the fact that all nine of them are on it counts as an accomplishment in this day and age, I suppose. But it certainly did not um, announce anything significant that was new. Uh, it was uh, the vast majority of it was just a restatement of what the court has and what John Roberts has said in like his 2011 year end report has said, uh, you know, are the, the practices that, that the court follows. The, the other thing that really struck me about this was in nowhere, either in the statement or in his letter to Senator Durbin, did the chief justice say, we get that there are issues. We get that the public is bothered by some things, that that uh, folks have raised legitimate issues, and we understand your concern. Uh, it, it was really just a you know, suggestion, and I think this is why the court has gotten panned uh, so much, that nothing needs to ch- There's no problem here. There's nothing to see. We've always been following these practices uh, with regard to ethics, and all, all is good. Uh, let's, let's all move on now. And, and that's clearly not going to be satisfying to, to, to people who are concerned about what's going on at the court. Yeah, I mean, that sort of brings it full circle to, you know, the Wall Street Journal article where that that very much seems to be how Alito sees some of these issues at the court. That is not, again, it's not the court. There's nothing wrong at the court. It's the way that that the public is perceiving and it's the way that, you know, those terrible journalists are writing things and, you know, um, and I guess the Supreme Court bar too. So, well, surely not the end of um, many of these, any of these sagas, probably. We'll be talking about these things again. Definitely. Let's move on to our interview. With us today is Neil Katyal. He's former acting solicitor general, now a partner at Hogan Lovells. And Neil just completed his 50th Supreme Court argument. Neil, thanks for joining us and congratulations on that accomplishment. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here with both of you. I read all of your work religiously, both of you. And so um, it's, uh, it's it's a great service to the court, what you do, and uh, I'm just honored to be here. <laughs> you are very kind. That's a good start to this interview. <laughs> Let me start off by asking you, so you, you your first argument was in 2006. And uh, the, if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was right after 
John Roberts and Sam Alito had joined the court. And what that meant was we all spent a lot of time in those arguments looking at Anthony Kennedy because he was kind of the, the fulcrum of the court in those ideologically divided cases. And I am interested now that we have moved to a world where it's a very different court, how different these arguments feel to you, how different they are to try to make your case when you're arguing to a much more conservative court and, and one where uh, maybe it's not so obvious in every case who that, that middle justice is going to be. Uh, yeah, so um, I've only argued in the Roberts court. That is my very first argument. Guantanamo, uh, John Roberts, was the chief justice, but he was actually recused because I had argued the case in the circuit court against him, against uh, the government, and he was on the panel uh, that decided the case. So during his confirmation hearings, he vowed to not be on. So Justice Stevens presided over that, but for all my other arguments, it's been the Chief Justice. Um, and um, I think that there has been a change in the court. You're absolutely right. I did feel when I used to go in regardless of who I was representing. It could be an individual, it could be a corporation. Justice Kennedy clearly hadn't had his mind made up in almost any of them. He was just listening. Um, Some people say he was agonizing, but you could really see it. Um, It's less so, I think, with the others, and in some ways becoming even less less so than um, for these particular individuals. It feels a little more... Um, rigid people coming in with set um, uh, views. Now, that doesn't mean that the briefs can't change things. Um, And so before the argument, you know, I certainly don't doubt that briefs do matter um, and there is still role for persuasion. There's also, I think, a lot of role for, you know, you might win or lose and you know you're going to win or lose, but you might be able to engineer a soft landing for your client um, and a more narrow loss or something like that. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about that. So you, you mentioned that it seems like more of the justices sort of have their minds set before arguments based off of the briefs. I wonder why it is or what you think about the fact that now arguments are going on quite a long time, typically, um, you know, five hours in the affirmative action cases, very few cases that end as their schedule. I mean, Um, Is it helpful to have more argument? I love it. And I think, you know, my hope is that the change in format is actually reflective of a view that they want to listen and be persuaded a little more at the argument stage. So I think, Kimberly, you're asking exactly the right question. Um, And, you know, when I started, it was truly a half hour per side. And, you know, um, uh, if I was in the middle of a sentence, I would look over at the chief and ask for permission to finish my sentence. But I knew if I went on for more than about 10 words, um, I would get a not great look back from the chief. <laughs> and um, it's really different now. You're absolutely right. When, you know, Moore versus Harper, I think I was up there for well more than an, over an hour. Um, and it was a three hour plus argument. And so in the affirmative action cases, five hours, um, you know, they, they all they do tend to be longer. Uh, I think that's great, because at least as an advocate, the thing I'm always most afraid of is, if I have a half hour, I might forget to say something. And this year has allowed me to relax more into it and think, well, it's probably not just going to be a half hour argument, it's going to be longer. Um, and so I think there's that I think um, Justice Jackson, this is her first year on the court. I had the privilege of arguing with her on her first day on the bench, uh, on her last day uh, on the bench as well. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And, you know, from the start, she asked a lot of questions. Um, and uh, that's atypical for a ju junior justice, but she did. Um, and some of the, que you know, the questions were spectacular. I think um, in particular, how her uh, questioning in the UNC oral argument was some of the best questioning I've ever heard at oral argument. Um, just, you know, I've worked on every affirmative action case for 25 years that has reached the U.S. Supreme Court. And she made a point about legacy admissions versus other forms of preference that was, I thought, just brilliant. Neil, I want to dive in a little bit to the, the cases before the court this term and start with a kind of a big picture question. Kimberly and I spent a lot of time complaining about the fact that the court has issued so few opinions so far. We're going to hit May 11th before uh, presumably that's our next opinion day and they will have decided only a quarter of the cases before them. Um, my first question is, do lawyers spend as much time complaining as reporters do? And my second question is, what do you think is going on here? This is clearly a very backloaded uh, term we have here. Is, is that a sign in your mind that they're just uh, incredibly divided on these cases? So there are all sorts of theories floating around as to why the Supreme Court's taken a long time to release opinions. Um, I'll note that Justice Jackson's very first opinion was ruling against me in the Delaware case. Um, and I think her very first circuit court opinion was ruling against me, too. So um, Should have seen that coming then. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think uh, you're right. It's a historically slow pace. There's some theory that that has to do with the security protocols at the court that um, had to be uh, put in place after the horrific leak last year. It could reflect division on the court, but I don't think that this court's, I mean, this, this term's cases are any more divisive, for example, than last year. So I don't quite think that could be the explanation. It could be that there's a new justice and that new justice wants to slow things down and think at every, you know, footnote and word over of every opinion. You know, it could be that, too. So I'm not really sure. I will say I haven't detected in my arguments this year or the other cases I watched. So probably I saw about 15 arguments in total. I don't I didn't detect any greater animosity among the justices or anything like that. Um, you know, so at least outwardly, I don't see those signs. So getting into some of the cases um, that you argue this term, uh, you mentioned Moore versus Harper, which is one of those um, cases that had the potential to be um, more divisive. Uh, but we got a ruling from the North Carolina Supreme Court today. Um, what does that mean for the future of this case in the Supreme Court? Um, well, you know, it's the decision has just come down in, uh, about an hour and a half ago, so we're studying it. But at least my read of it is that the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed itself on the underlying state law question, but it reaffirmed itself on the question that is before the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the independent state legislature theory. And it repeatedly made clear that the North Carolina legislature's authority over congressional redistricting is not exclusive and is constrained by st the state constitution. So it seems that that holding has stood, and that is, of course, the holding that the North Carolina Republicans were trying to challenge. So uh, my view is that uh, it won't alter the jurisdiction of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, you know, I certainly think some folks may try and argue that, um, but I don't think so. And the other thing I think is... Um, you know, uh, I think it's a pretty dangerous thing to allow state Supreme Courts to essentially test drive their opinions. 
and go through oral argument at the U.S. Supreme Court and then pull it back or something like that. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, in a case called Honig versus Doe, spent a lot of time uh, explaining why that's so dangerous. And so, you know, I think that's also um, something to, to factor into the mix. But we'll see. I, you know, there may be further briefing and uh, movement at the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you think that this is an issue that the court needs to decide now, uh, now that we're still comfortably in advance of the next presidential and, and congressional election? Yes, that's what Justice Kavanaugh said earlier in just in uh, in an opinion about why the case had to ultimately be heard. And uh, I think that's right. Um, uh, you don't want to decide this at the last minute in an election uh, posture. I think one nice thing about this case, because normally election litigation is so frenetic, um, this didn't have that because it was on a normal time scale and it allowed for immense amounts of amicus briefs. I think there were like 70 or 80. I, I remember spending weekend after weekend reading them. So um, it just allowed us to really bake our, our, our work into our brief and the other side to do so as well. So uh, one case I wanted to talk to you about was your last case. And I think earlier on in this interview, you said something like, sometimes you know if you're going to win or you're going to lose, but you can sort of um, in argument, get more of a soft landing. And the justices seemed pretty skeptical of um, your side's arguments in these last cases. And so just wondering, um, sort of how, what's your goal whenever you go into an argument like that, or you're in an argument and you see sort of how, how things are panning out? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to talk specifically about that case because it's obviously right. pending, but I think you know, definitely one of the things you do as a Supreme Court advocate is you say, A, can I win this case? B, if I can't win this case, can I get it out of the Supreme Court um, one way or another? Or C, if I can't get it out of the Supreme Court and I don't think the client can win on the bottom line, what's the best way for them to lose, engineer that soft landing? And so you're thinking about all three of those things. And for me, I would say another thing I'm always thinking about is just kind of my duty to the court, my duty to the clients, um, try and make the best argument you can um, with the most integrity behind the position, whatever it is. And, you know, I think uh, the court uh, appreciates that. And, you know, that's something I feel very strongly about, about lawyering generally, that we as lawyers have a duty to represent positions to the best of our ability before the court. And that's how the adversarial system works. You know, that's why I, you know, take some of these pretty horrific death penalty cases um, on the facts. Um, but it's because I feel like, you know, that's got to happen. And, you know, I feel that about, you know, uh, other cases as well. You know, so I'm thinking about all of those things. Neil, looking beyond just your cases this term, there is a lot of angst among progressives about what the Supreme Court might be about to do over the next couple months. And I'm wondering, as you look at the, the many cases the court has, the, you know, uh, race cases, voting cases, uh, you know, regulatory cases, what are you most concerned about as you look at, at the potential output of the Supreme Court in May and June? I want to say a little less about a specific case and something more about stare decisis, because I think, you know, when the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court last year overruled Roe versus Wade, they signaled basically any precedent now is up for grabs. Um, and it could be Obergefell and marriage equality, could be Griswold and contraception. 
But if you could overrule Roe versus Wade, which a, a trio of justices in 1992, all of whom were appointed by Republican presidents, said, you know, Roe was a star, was a super precedent that social expectations had crystallized around it in a way that wasn't true for other decisions. Um, and yet this court overruled that. So once you can do it for Roe, I think you can do it for anything. And so that deeply, deeply concerns me. And I think Justice Kagan had it right many years ago in the Marvel Enterprises case when she talked about the virtues of stare decisis and how there's a wisdom and a prudence to following what judicial predecessors have done. And I do feel like we're losing some of that. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that does concern me. All right. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your insight on the Supreme Court. And, and congratulations again on your 50th argument. We'll have you back on for your 100. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> so so this, time next, this time next year? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, thank you both so much. Really, it's a delight to be with you both. All right. Well, it was good to hear from Neil and to have him on, get his insight into the Supreme Court. And the justices are, as of now, not scheduled to take the bench until May 11, meaning that we will not get any more opinions in argued cases until then, um, unless the Supreme Court adds another day. So for all of you listeners out there, you can follow all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.